Well, you saw uh, in the video uh, that we used to intro, Sean just said that uh, Redemption Church is one church, and we have multiple congregations throughout the state of Arizona. And to us, Redemption is not a brand name, uh, it's a family name. And uh, just like your family and most every other family, um, our family has a crazy uncle named Aaron Daly, and uh, he's with us here this morning. Uh, Aaron is one of the lead pastors at Redemption Alhambra, um, which is a congregation that we love uh, and we learn so much from. This is a congregation that is so near and dear to our hearts here at Gilbert. Uh, Aaron also serves on our executive team for Redemption Arizona, where he helps to lead and cast vision for all of our churches. But more than all of that, um, I want you to know that I, I love this guy. Um, Aaron is a friend and a brother to me in the truest sense of the word. Um, he has been a real Aaron to me, and he has uh, helped to hold up my arms in some really difficult seasons. Um, Aaron loves Jesus. He is dependent on the Spirit of God. He loves people. He loves this church. Um, he is not afraid of making an irreverent joke anywhere at any time in any environment, which is probably what I love about him the most. Um, and one thing for you to know, so in Aaron's tradition and in his congregation, he's used to people shouting him down. So I said, listen, man, 1030 is your service. Nine o'clock, those people don't get it, right? So that's why I always tell you guys, you're my favorite. Uh, so at 10.30, you guys get it. You know what it is to shout them down. Would you just help me to welcome my brother, Aaron, please? Shout me down. What's up, 10.30? Oh, there you go. Okay, you were right. You were right. You were right. You know, uh, sometimes uh, we forget what God has done throughout Arizona through this small community of believers that really has blessed. And when I get to sit in rooms like this and worship with you all, I'm reminded that I get to be a part of an incredible family of God. And I just want to say I love you all. And I'm so thankful to be a part of Redemption Church. The other thing is all of our pastors tend to only get to hear our critiques. And sometimes we need to give them some affirmation, just sometimes. And I think Paul needs to hear a little hand clap for him. This brother is a dear friend. That's too much. That's too much. That, that's too much. That's too much. Just a little one, I said. Uh, no, Paul's an incredible friend, and I love being a part of this team. I love being here today, and I, I really, what, what, I've, what drew me to redemption was its deep love for God's word. No matter what area we talk about, we want to center it around God's word. And if you've been coming to this series, We Want a King, this has been a little different than what we do. Uh, usually we'll kind of take deep dives into smaller texts, but we've been flying over chapters at a time. Um, and so uh, today, um, as we get to this uh, 2 Samuel uh, 6 and 7, I'm going to have to kind of fly over some things, but I want to give you some warnings with this series. First of all, um, this series, We Want a King, is intentionally not shying away from uh, areas of all parts of our life. We say all of life is all for Jesus. Some of you got the t-shirt, but I, I want to say what this, this means to us. There is not one area of our lives that the sovereign God does not say that's mine. That also includes our political lives. It includes that. 
our private and our political. God, the sovereign God, says it's mine. And one thing we can tend to do is tell God where he can go and where he can't go. And many of us have said, God, I'll give you my private life, but I will not give you my political life. And God is not good at respecting your boundaries. Can you say amen, amen to that? His grace pushes down those walls, and I want to tell us that as we say we want a king, what we're referencing here is a nation, God's children, God's children who cried out this prayer, we want a king, and their intention was that they wanted a king who would represent them and fight their battles. When we choose our kings, this is what we choose based upon. What battles do we want this king to fight? And how do we want him to represent us? They're choosing the same thing. They're choosing one that will fight their battles and represent them. The problem is what they got was Saul. <laughs> That's what they got. When they chose one to represent their strengths and one to fight their battles, what they ended up getting was not a representation, they got a revelation. They got a revelation of their own hearts. You see, what Saul did was reveal the heart of the nation. You see, oftentimes, when we choose our leaders, they reveal our brokenness, not represent our strengths. They reveal our sickness. They reveal how broken and divided we are. And instead of protecting the nation, Saul was a picture of God's judgment. This is hard for us when we think of God's judgment, oftentimes we think of like God sitting up there and then zapping us with lightning every time we get out of order. <laughs> you need to be careful, don't say that, God's gonna zap you. And the problem with this is that doesn't represent oftentimes God's judgment. God's judgment is when he turns us over to what we want. That's what Romans says. Romans says he turns them over to the desires of their hearts. He turns them over to the things that they want. And when they wanted a king, God's judgment was, you can have it. You can have it. You see, God's judgment is when a sovereign God gives us what we want. And oftentimes when we hear the word sovereign, we interpret it in our own mind and language as God should be in control. And when we say in control, here's what we mean. He should be controlling. If God is really sovereign, then why does this happen? And why does this happen? If God's really sovereign, he should be controlling these things. The hardest thing for us to know about a sovereign God is it doesn't mean he's controlling. It means he's in control. Let me say that again. Our sovereign God is not controlling, he is in control. It is a level of sovereignty that you all can't even wrap your minds around, I can't either. When the nation is rebelling against his plan and his purpose, he uses his, their rebellion and works it for his good. That's crazy sovereignty. 
that he could use the rebellion and work it out for his plan and good, that even when everyone is going against his plans and purposes, he uses it. Saul is a complicated character. And I will say this, as we've gone through Saul's story, there's been so much that is coming out, but right in the middle of Saul's story, you see David being anointed a king at 12 years old. Now last week, I I encouraged Paul earlier, but I will tell you this, last week Paul was supposed to preach five chapters and didn't even preach any of them. You know what I mean? Way to set me up, Paul. He just told me this morning too, I was planning on launching out of it. He picked a whole, he didn't even follow the flow of everything that's there. And so I, I have to cover way more chapters today and I preach long anyway. So this is gonna be a rough one for you. Just get ready, okay? David, instead of at 12 years old going and taking the kingdom, what does he do? He serves a king. And he doesn't just serve him. There was many times that David could have taken what was already his, what he was anointed for. But David shows a difference from Saul, and we are going to continue to see this. And the first thing we need to see is that one of the major differences is there's a difference between taking the throne and being given the throne. Now, if you say amen once in a while, it knows you heard it, and I can just kind of move on to the next point, right? Because otherwise, I feel like I always got to repeat myself. So I'm going to say it again. If there's a difference between them, there's a difference between taking the throne and being given the throne. Oh, I can move on. One of those realities is this. So many of us know that when God says something, we think we've got to go out and take it in our own strength. David shows us, no, there's a difference between taking something and being given something. Those that wait and humble themselves will see what it means to be exalted rather than taking the power. See, David refused to enter into a fight for power. And last week, Paul was supposed to, but I will fill you in, that there is a reality To David, even after Saul's death, asks God and says, should I go? He asks for permission from God, and God says yes. And so he goes, and only one of the tribes anoint him as king, recognize his kingdom, which means this. Just just take the context here. Those three chapters between two and five are three years or more where David is still a king only over one tribe, not over all 12 tribes. Hmm. And you want to know what those chapters do? There are years and years of tribalism that the people of God turn on each other and hunker down in their tribes and divide, and you know what they do? They start murdering each other. Here's what happens when we choose a king and enter into a fight for power. We turn on our own brothers and call them enemies. When we enter into a fight for power and we think we choose our own king, what ends up happening is we start seeing those in other tribes 
as enemies. This is not them fighting the Philistines. This is them fighting their brothers. But that was just them, right? We never struggle with tribalism here. Right? That was them. That's not us. We, we can easily see our brother if they're in a different tribe, can't we? We would never look across the aisle and say they can't be Christians if they're not a part of our tribe. Can we recognize the family of God even if they're not in our tribe? Not if we're in a fight for power. Because if you're in the fight for power, you enter into it like Abner and Shibbeth and all of David's tribe. They start fighting for power, but David is strangely absent. Because what we see about the people of God is they would rather have power than unity because they don't think unity is powerful. They would rather have the throne than the family of God be one. And they justify murdering each other, turning on each other, but David acts different. Why? Because all of this transition of power is a the narrator is helping us see that Saul and David are different. You see, while David is having all these things happen, David, instead of fighting for power, waits for God to give him the throne. And when he's anointed king in chapter five, they say, you didn't rule like Saul, you ruled like a shepherd. You see, he was a different type of king. He wasn't a king king, he was a shepherd king. They also said, you're like us, you're one of us, you're one of our people. The reason they couldn't recognize his kingship is because he wasn't a celebrity, he was just a common person, like everybody else. And he was willing to wait for God's timing. You see, what he continues to show is that the kingdom of God, God's chosen king is different than the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. I'm gonna say it this way, we are different. Now we do something in our tradition to make you uncomfortable, but I don't care. I'm here, I, you, I won't be here next week, you know, so you can just do, appease me today. In our tradition, we'll turn to our neighbor and say, neighbor, and, and, and then I'm gonna do this here. So you're gonna have to actually look at somebody in the face at church. Oh my goodness. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, do it. With a look, you guys are really bad at this. The first service was way better than you. I'm gonna tell you, Paul said this was the service. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, you're different. Okay, now you said it like with a little bit of passivity and I didn't even believe you when you said it, okay? Turn to your other neighbor and say, neighbor, you're different. <laughs> Notice when people get uncomfortable, they laugh. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm uncomfortable telling you this. He's making me do it. Can I say one of my greatest concerns about the people of God in the West is they're afraid to be different. They're afraid to be different. And when I say different, I don't mean unique. <laughs> I mean different. David 
was different than his own tribe. While they're out there killing, they would come back and tell David, look at what we did, and he would cry and lead a lament service. While everybody's out there fighting for position, he's crying and leading the nation in lament. While they're out there fighting for justice because all the manipulation, they come back and he holds his own tribe accountable. He holds his own nation accountable. Why? Because judgment begins in the house of God. We always want to judge everybody else, but we don't want to judge and hold accountable our own people because we're afraid to be different. You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a peculiar people, you're different. The hard part is you're in the same systems of the world, you're living in the same tensions, and you are a part of the same uh, political uh, uh, polarizations. You're, you're seeing all that's happening in the world, and, and you're, you're watching that's taking place, and the pressure is you should act like the nations of the world. You should enter into the same battles. You should fight the same wars. You should do the same thing. You should take the power and instead the people of God are called to be different. We should be lamenting and crying and holding each other accountable and calling each other. You're different. You're different. I believe God has sent me here today to remind you of something. You're peculiar. And this theme continues as we look at chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a story that many of us are familiar with. You know, we've written songs, you know, I've become even more undignified than I, I think that's David Crowder. That, I thought that would resonate. My, my tradition, when the spirit of the Lord comes upon my heart, yeah, that's a different, that's Fred Hammond, you wouldn't know that. But I, I'm just saying, we've written songs about it. We know these songs. We, we talk about David dancing in his Lenin ephod, which is why Paul invited me here today. I said, I'm not doing it. You know, I'll, I'll be undignified, but I'm not doing it here. I gotta, be, I gotta put my best clothes on today, you know? We've heard this story so many times that so often we can miss how profound David's first act is. Remember, I reminded you this. David is living in a polarized, tribalized state, and he's trying to bring the nations back together, and he knows that the only way that the tribes can be one is if he brings the ark back to be the center of the people of God. Healing for the nation doesn't come because of a new king. It's when the presence of God is back with his people. Why? Because you want to know what makes us different? God with us. That's what makes us different. And Saul did not care about the ark being there. It was a trophy to him. And when it was lost, it wasn't something that was top of his priority. He cared about how he looked, but David goes, no, we're going to go get it. So here's, here's what I want you to see. David is different. He wants the ark back. And so the reason I got a whiteboard, and I, you should have seen Brian. When I put the whiteboard on stage today, Brian got all giddy. He was like, you're going to use a whiteboard when you preach? I'm like, listen, wait till I'm done, because this is more like a bash on whiteboards, but not the way Brian uses it, because you use it in a God. You're different. You're different. Turn to Brian and say, you're different. You're different. 
I can just picture this. David goes, listen, we are going to go get the ark. We're going to do God's work. That's what we're going to do. And everyone's like, yes, we're going to do it. And so they go, okay, let's get a whiteboard and let's strategize how to go get this ark. And so what they do, they sit around and they go, listen, um, here's, where, here's where they are. There's a lot of windy paths and a lot of loop-de-loos. And then we got to get back. So it's a, it's a windy road. And what we've noticed is, is I know God was kind of into like them carrying it and six steps. And, you know, Deuteronomy gives this whole idea of what they need to do. But listen, when God was captured, he got taken uh, and put on a cart. And so all of our other nations have been wheeling a God around on a cart. So here's our idea. What if we build a new cart? And they're like, yes, brilliant and efficient. Faster, smarter. Incredible idea. What else should we do? They go, well, here's, here's the other thing. Um, the, the pace, you know, is a little slow. Six steps, stop, sacrifice. That's like a, whew, that could take a long time, you know? So what if we sped it up a little? We put it on the wheels, we build a new cart, and we go faster. And everybody's like, God loves faster, for sure. If I know anything about God, he loves modern ingenuity and fast. They're like, yes, God would love this. And then they go, you know what else we should do? We should take a guy named Uzziah, which means strength, and we should put him right by the cart, and if anything goes wrong, we got a backup plan. He just, just keeps it up. We use our own strength to protect God from falling. Beautiful idea. Backup plan. God loves backup plans. You know what else we should do? My brother Neil's going to love this one. Cut out the whole six-step sacrifice and auction. That is too expensive. And we all know God loves cheap. Can I get an amen, Neil? Can I get an amen, Neil? We all know God loves cheap. I mean, I've worked with Neil. He's one of my closest friends. And I'm telling you, he's taught me, God loves cheap. <laughs> this is God's work. And if we know anything about God, he loves new things, fast things, strong things, and cheap things. So they go out, get it, new cart, they're going fast. It's cheap, they're skipping the sacrifices. And Uzziah hits a bump, they hit a bump, and Uzziah does his job and reaches up and dies. And you want to know what happens in this place? David stops the whole thing and goes, God, why would you do that? David gets angry at God. Why? He's doing God's work. Does God want his presence back with his people? Absolutely. He's doing God's work. Who cares if we're doing it a little bit different? Because many of us, like David, fall into this trap where if we're doing God's work, who cares if we do it God's way? 
cares if we do it God's way? As long as we're doing God's work, if we could do it newer, faster, stronger, cheaper, we should do it. Because the strategies of man have fixed the outdated slowness of God's plan. A few mature people will be able to say amen to this. God's way is often heavier, slower, more expensive, and all about obedience. Can you say amen to that? I came into redemption and got to meet one of our founders, Tom Schrader, who was an influence on my life from a distance. And we were all sitting in a boardroom one time and he said, you know what, redemption is the hardest, slowest, most expensive way to do church. But it's better. You don't hear many boardrooms where people are asking, not just what's your work, God. What way do you want us to do it? See, one of redemption's major themes is going, how do we do God's work, God's way? And I would say most of us can agree that God's work is important. Yes, God's work is important. Where we often divide is what is God's way. Because his way to us can seem outdated. His way to us can seem too slow and, and too much crying and too much lamenting and too much, uh, too much working through relational things, uh, too much dependence rather than strength, and it's too expensive. God's way can often feel to us foreign. Why? Because that's how the world does their kingdom. And the angst of the kingdom of God is they want a king because they want to be like the world. Church, here's one of the biggest difference between David and Saul. When Saul got it wrong, he sulked. When David got it wrong, he got angry, but he repented. He repented and went back and did it again. But notice, he didn't change God's work. He just did it God's way. Some of the hardest thing for us to do is recognize that even if we've been doing God's work, maybe we've been trying different ways to do it and God's been calling us to go, listen, some of your greatest leadership that you could do is go back and do again what you did wrong the first time. Go back. Don't, don't pull away from it. Go back and admit that you did it wrong and do it the way God calls. So then they did it according to Deuteronomy. And this time, now, instead of God being uncomfortable, when David did it God's way, an expensive way, and the slow way, he comes back worshiping like crazy, and he's, and he's dancing with all of his might, and he's worshiping totally. You see, what happens is God's way offends Saul's way. When you do it Saul's way, you disobey God. 
when you do it God's way, you offend Saul. One of the hardest things about being different is that when you do it God's way, you offend the old way. You always will. And that's who Michael is. Michael is continuing to be referred to as Saul's daughter because the narrator is trying to separate and show us the difference between them. And many of us would think that David should apologize to his wife for the way he was worshiping, but instead David does not apologize for obeying God. Whew. Any husband knows you apologize when you're right and when you're wrong. But not David. Why? He says, you didn't like that? I'm going to get more undignified. Because Saul's house is more worried about how they look than worshiping. And here's the thing you got to know about David. What makes him different is before he was a king, he was a worshiper. So when he became king, how could he stop worshiping? Before he was a king, before he was anything, he was a worshiper. David's heart has always been to worship God and his heart being poured out before him and worshiping him. And when he is worshiping God, he is actually more himself. And so David had to shed his kingly clothes to show what I really am is a worshiper. You're different because you're a worshiper. As the band comes and we prepare for our communion, I want us to turn to chapter seven and I'm gonna read some text here because here's another way that David is different and I wanna end with this today as we talk about what God's work is and God's way. Here's another thing that is different. See, David goes to the prophet rather than the prophet having to come to him. Saul always had to have Samuel come confront him. David goes to the prophet Nathaniel and says, would I feel so bad about living in this house and I want to create a house for God. I want us to see what Nathan says back to him. Verse three, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. I love Nathan's response. He's like, man, David, his desire for God's presence and his desire to build God a house, it's so, just whatever you wanna do, do it. But look at what the next verse says. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. <laughs> you wanna know what this is? God's interruption. How many of you know that God has to interrupt our plans so often in our lives? <laughs> God has to interrupt our do whatever you want because God's with you. This is grace when God interrupts. And look at what he says. Go tell my servant David this is what the Lord says. Are you the one who builds me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with tents as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers who I've commanded shepherd my people Israel, why have you built me a house of cedar? Can I encourage you all in something? 
Spend time this week meditating on chapter 7. Ask God what he would say to you because in this, what we see is David listening to the voice of the prophet, which is different than Saul. Saul wouldn't ask for permission. He would ask for forgiveness. Can we just admit that we're so used to depending on God's forgiveness that we rarely ask for permission? How many of you are thankful that God is our Savior? Can you say amen? How many of you know what it's like to be forgiven? I know what it's like. So does David. But just because God forgives doesn't mean we shouldn't ask him for permission because he's not just savior, he's Lord. He's king. What makes David different is not that he was forgiven. It was that he sees God as his king. He asks him for permission. And when God speaks, he adjusts his plans. He repents. Can we admit that we have a tendency to want to build a house for the Lord because the other nations do? An impressive house that other people would look at and go, look at this monument. Look at God's house. It's better than any house. God says to him, no human will build my house. I will build my house. I'm a God who's on the move. I'm a God who's different than the gods of the nations. I'm a God who's on a move. I've been living in a tent, moving with my people. And in that, Nathan receives a word that there will be one in the line of David who will make a temple. But he also says that that temple will last forever. And here is the prophetic reality. He's not just talking of Solomon, although Solomon makes a temple. That temple is not going to... The one who will make a temple that will last forever, he's pointing to Jesus. Out of the line of David will come a king who, according to John chapter 1, will take on flesh and tent amongst us. He will tabernacle amongst us. This king will come and he will live in flesh and he will be on the move and he will tent amongst us. And the reason why people couldn't recognize Jesus as king is because he didn't look like the kings of the world and he did not build temples and tabernacles like kings of the world. He moved. He moved. So many of us have a hard time following Jesus because he's constantly moving. And when he says, follow me, we got to move. In him, we live and move and have our being. Church, it is not by might, it is not by power, it is by what? The Spirit, says the Lord. And today, as we come to the Lord's table together,
we are reminded that we serve a God who put on flesh, who spilt his blood, who breathes his spirit into us. And while we're trying to meet him and build a house for him, here's what I'm here to remind you of. Do you not know you are the temple? Don't you know? His spirit dwells in us. We're different. While everybody else is building monuments, we're moving. We're scattering. But the people of God are different. And I believe as we partake of communion today and worship together, we're responding like David who sat when he heard the word of the Lord. He received it and he broke out in worship. I pray that today you'll do the same. You'll sit and receive God's word and you'll break out in worship even if it makes Saul's house uncomfortable. I believe with your eyes closed that I've been sent to remind you of this. You're different. Do God's work God's way. Father, bless this time of communion and worship. Let there be freedom, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's respond with communion and worship and prayer.